Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about sex ed. And we are going to cover the history of sex ed, bringing things up to today. And this is actually part one of a little two-parter that we're going to do. There is a lot to talk about. There's so much to talk about with sexual education, as you can imagine. But uh, to kick things off, what really got our wheels turning about Sex Ed was a story published in the New York Times Magazine in the November 20th edition. And it was a profile of this teacher, Al Vernacchio's Sexuality and Society class. And this was an elective for high school seniors at a private school called Friends Central School in a wealthy suburb of Philadelphia. And the whole crux of the article was the fact that it is one of the only sex ed courses in public and private high school education in the United States that not only focuses on like how babies are made, how to prevent STD contractions and things like that, but also focuses on the more pleasurable aspects of sex. It's not just scare tactics. I thought it was really interesting because uh, this teacher is really giving kids um, not only an outlet to discuss their insecurities and their worries and everything, but really giving them straightforward information. Mm -hmm. And you just don't hear about that very much about teachers either wanting to or being able to. Right. Provide such straightforward information. I mean, kids really go to him as not only a teacher, but a a counselor. Right. Because on the one hand, there's this societal fear of teen sexuality. Obviously, we have sex ed not only to um, prevent teen pregnancies, but also to kind of uh, delay sexual activity among teenagers. But at the same time, there's so much fear of even broaching the topic that a lot of times sex ed can just be an afterthought. I mean, I don't know about you, Caroline, but um, in my high school experience, sex ed consisted of one class in biology. Mm-hmm. And it was basically at one point my teacher very awkwardly saying, if you don't want a baby, don't have sex. I don't, I, you know, reading up for this podcast. I tried to remember any sex ed classes I had. And I can remember in fourth grade, our teacher taught us about periods and Mm -hmm. tampons and pads and all that stuff. And I remember somebody asking, well, like, what about sex? And she's like, that's not what we're here to talk about. (laughs) And she did talk like that. Um, And then in high school, we had a big like school-wide assembly um, where people with AIDS and HIV came in and talked to us. But I don't remember ever having like a formal sex ed conversation yeah, at not, school. Not so much of a, of a comprehensive conversation. Yeah, before uh, high school, my only sex ed before that, since I was homeschooled, as you know, was a delightful book called Almost 12 <laughs> that my mom gave me before I turned 12. I guess I was almost 12. <laughs> and uh, I remember <laughs> seeing the, uh, the, it had these, sort of a rudimentary illustrations of the naked adult female looking and, like a and male body with no actual yeah and i was disgusted <laughs> <laughs> it's like whoa he need to put on a towel or something 
And when I learned what intercourse was, and the first thing I thought in my head was, well, that is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so wait, was the book just about like human anatomy or? It was about uh, puberty and development, taught me about menstruation. um, And yes, and then went into how how babies are made and uh, more of the some of the finer part points of sexuality. It was, I will say, written from a a Christian perspective. Uh, so there was, there was some of that dogma intertwined mm-hmm. in it, but really the, the main thing that I remember is, <laughs> are those sketches, um, <laughs> being like, Ooh, so much hair. <laughs> well, as we've already discussed in our romance novel podcast, my sex ed really came from reading romance novels, which is terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I snuck a lot of lifetime movies and my older sister's cosmos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I read like Seventeen magazine, but I don't think I read Cosmo. I can't even read Cosmo now. It's just (laughs) so gross to me. No, I actually, I don't think it was until I was 18 and I was sitting on the couch watching TV with my mother and she just looks at me and goes, do we need to, uh, do we need to talk about anything? I said, no, no, gross. No stop. way, mom. I don't know what you're about to say, but stop it. But it, well, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, we have similar experiences of learning more outside the classroom about sex and reproduction than inside the classroom. Because according to statistics from the Guttmacher Institute, a majority of kids are really relying on their parents, their peers and media to, to teach them what is not necessarily being instructed in school. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's talk about the history of sex ed in the United States because it is fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, early sex ed, and this is in quotes, early sex ed, warn boys and young men against masturbation lest they lose all of their energy. Oh, yeah. Their masculine energy. Yeah, we've mentioned uh, Sylvester Graham, uh, inventor of the cracker, <laughs> uh, the, the Graham cracker, in the podcast a number of times. Um, and he definitely plays a role in this early anti-masturbation movement. And just to give you uh, a sense of, of why... Masturba- male masturbation was so feared. The Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, steamed publication that it was, I'm sure, in the mid-1800s, warned that ejaculation, quote, should be made but sparingly since sturdy manhood loses its energy and bends under too frequent expenditure of this important secretion. That sounds clinical, all right. So really, well, early sex ed was all basically, hey, guys, you should really not masturbate. Yeah. Please don't, don't waste your And obviously manhood. we didn't have to tell women that because women don't know anything about right. their bodies and such. We're not interested in sex. Guys, just eat these crackers. <laughs> You'll be fine. Yeah. These very bland crackers. And do not put marshmallows on them. <laughs> uh, but then we get... Progressive era reformers like uh, Julius Rosenberg, who was the president of Sears and Roebuck, and Charles Eliot, who was the president of Harvard University, who um, were these early social hygienists who really wanted to uh, get out the message about sex ed in order to stamp out venereal disease. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to me that the sex ed movement, you know, which is so controversial now, mm-hmm was not that controversial then. It was all about, like, we have to make sure society is clean. You know, it was more about preventing diseases, which, it, not that it's not now, 
But I mean, the social hygiene movement was not exactly liberal. Right. I mean, and it's kind of, it's kind of a practical thing. And today, um, I think you could argue that, that sex ed is really more focused on, um, teen pregnancy mm-hmm. prevention, which is also important as well. But, uh, right back, back in the 1800s when it really got off the ground, um, they, they were all about keeping, keeping things clean. Um, so in 1892, the National Education Association passes a resolution that called for moral education in the schools. Right. This came about, um, with the rise of urbanization and industrialization because all of a sudden you have people moving into cities mm-hmm. rapidly, you know, city populations start booming. And I like the example they used in that article of, um, you know, little boys weren't on the farm watching cows mate anymore. So they, they needed more instruction from outside of the family. So, um, yeah, the, the National Education Association wanted to have moral education in schools. And then, uh, for our f- listeners in Chicago right now, you need to give your, your city two thumbs up because in 1913, your fair town became the first major city to implement sex ed for high schools until it was shut down by the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah, they campaigned strongly against it and ended up having to force the superintendent to resign. Hey, but you were still the first, Chicago. Yeah. Don't you forget that. (laughs) But the thing that really gets the federal government behind sex education efforts in the United States is World War I, and soldiers with syphilis. Oh, syphilis. Ooh, oh, syphilis. Yeah, the American Hygiene Association, which was founded in 1914 as part of this social purity movement that we talked about, helped teach so- soldiers about sexual hygiene because it was just stuff like gonorrhea and syphilis mm-hmm. and chlamydia was just kind of running rampant. Yeah, and as early as 1918, Congress actually uh, passed the Chamberlain-Kahn Act, which allocated money to educate soldiers. And the first sex ed film in the United States was called Damaged Goods and was about a guy, a soldier actually, who gets syphilis from contract syphilis from a prostitute and then he passes the syphilis along to the unborn fetus in his newlywed wife's womb and the baby then is born with syphilis and dies right and the man kills himself gosh horrible ending the downer but yeah at the time one critic wrote that boys should be made to watch it because um in 1919 a report from the U.S. Department of Labor's Children's Bureau suggested that soldiers would have been better off if they had received sex instruction in school. So very early on, mm-hmm. you know, people are saying kids would be better off, and especially when they become adults and start becoming sexually active, if they knew this stuff beforehand. Right. Um, and even though it seems like sex ed in schools has become is more of a contemporary debate by the 1920s 20 to 40 percent of the u.s school systems had programs on social hygiene and sexuality now granted things like masturbation was still very much frowned upon uh but nevertheless it was starting to be taught gradually and in the 1930s the u.s office of education began to actually train teachers to discuss uh, human sexuality and, again, that, that whole hygiene thing. And then in the 1940s and 50s, we have the emergence of human sexuality courses offered in colleges. Yeah, things really get rolling in the 60s and 70s, though. 
1964, Mary Calderon, the medical director at Planned Parenthood, founded the Sexuality, Information, and Education Council of the United States. And four years later, in 1968, the Office of Education that we just mentioned gave NYU a grant to develop graduate programs for training sex ed teachers. Right. And the founding of the Sexuality, Information, and Education Council of the United States, <laughs> quite a long title, uh, was important because it served as a more liberal counterbalance to the Amer- American Hygiene Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and while uh, it was pro-abstinence, it was really intended to open up sexual discussion to foster or, um, more personal sexual responsibility, basically um, that comprehensive sex education that's often talked about today. Right. And by the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of resistance is starting to emerge um, to sex ed. It started to become kind of a religious and political issue because religious conservatives start to build a movement partially based on their opposition to sex instruction in schools. Mm-hmm. So this is where we see sort of the dawn of the current argument against comprehensive sex ed in schools that is not just abstinence-based. And the funny thing is, though, and this is coming from uh, Talk About Sex by Janice M. Irvine, um, and even though we have the sexual revolution that's going on in the 1960s, and maybe in our minds there's a perception that all of a sudden kids are having having intercourse outside of marriage for the first time. That's really not the case. It wasn't so much that uh, the sexual revolution caused an uptick in sexual activity um, because it was the same amount of premarital sex happening as it was in the 1920s, but more of a changing attitude. And it was really that attitude and greater openness about sexuality that caused that initial polarization saying, oh, wow, okay, what's what's happening? Yeah, what's happening to our society? And of course, you have the emergence of the birth control pill Mm -hmm. and the shifting in the gender roles. And all of a sudden, everything is kind of topsy turvy. Um, So it's kind of funny that uh, during the sexual revolution, we have that first uh, pushback against sex ed or comprehensive sex ed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, I mean, there were strong opinions against it. Uh, some groups called sex ed communist indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Um, there were rumors about sex ed instructors encouraging students to be homosexual or even stripping or having sex in front of the class, which I'm not sure where they're getting this stuff. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so as a result, parent groups start protesting. Although I do think we've got to point out um, in regard to the religious push behind or against, I should say, uh, the religious push against sex ed was that in the 1960s, there was also a new morality movement among some mainstream Christians that was actually in favor of a healthier discourse about sexuality. So when we talk about politics and religion and its stance on sex ed, um, you know, we don't want to make a blanket statement saying that, well, you know, anyone who goes to church is right. against sex ed. Uh, but this is just the time when those forces really begin to emerge. Right. And then in the 80s, the AIDS and HIV pandemic really gets bad, breaks out, and it strengthens the position of sex ed proponents mm-hmm. because they're saying, look, we obviously can't ignore what's happening. Mm-hmm. We've got to keep our kids safe. Uh, and then in the 1990s, age, AIDS education has become standard in schools. But at this time, too, abstinence-only education rhetoric is now becoming part of not only political conversation, but now seeping into the mainstream. 
Right. Yeah. At this point, you know, everybody's realizing, okay, we have to have some sort of discussion about sex and protecting yourself. And so conservatives launched this movement to rebrand sex ed as abstinence only education to sort of rebrand it, give it their own spin and say, hey, look, there's alternatives to talking about sex and STDs. Mm -hmm. We can just tell our kids, look, just don't do it. Right. And it was, uh, I think, values based Mm -hmm. education is another uh way that it's often labeled. And in 1996, this is really significant because at this point, um, sex ed is all about obviously related to federal funding. Now, 1996 is a significant year in uh, the, the development of absence-only education or the proliferation of it in public schools in the U.S. because it is provisions for it are included in the 1996 Welfare Reform Act. And really from that point on, the federal funding and programming promoting abstinence only until marriage grows until we have uh, until the Obama administration comes in. Right. And in December 2009, Congress replaced the community based abstinence education program with a teen pregnancy prevention program to support evidence based interventions and others, other programs that demonstrated promise. So they're moving away a little bit, not obviously not totally, mm-hmm. but they're moving away um, from just the purely abstinence based classes to some that are like, hey, OK, sex happens. <laughs> now, when it comes to all of these um, these federal programs, because currently, or at least for the fiscal year 2010, there were three main federal programs or teens and sex ed in the United States. And when it comes to these programs, it's incredible to me how much money we um, collectively pour into uh, teen pregnancy prevention, uh, preventing STD contraction, increasing condom use to the tune of $114.5 million for that 2009 program that you just mentioned, Caroline. Um, a lot of these abstinence-only education programs totaled up to around $170 million plus, I believe. And uh, when you put it in context, the fact that we have invested so much and yet, according to the Guttmacher Institute, teens in the U.S. Um, have one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the developed world, more than twice as much as Canada or Sweden. You got to ask yourself, what is going on here? And it's not that we're having more sex. Uh, there was a study that found that teens in the U.S. are having the same amount of sex as kids in Canada, England, France and Sweden. But still... We are contracting more STDs and we're having more um, more babies. Right. I mean, I think it's the conversation has to change. I mean, maybe none of our methods are really working about talking about sex or not having sex with our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's idealistic to say that maybe we could have better conversations at home or that we'd learn everything we need at school. But right now, I just feel like so many people disagree about what should be taught or whether anything should be taught at all. Right. That it's sort of, it's sort of ineffective at the moment. And you have to take into account that because there are, there's so many different types of federal funding for a number of different kinds of programs in elementary, middle and high school. It's not just one. Every single public school does not have the same type of sex education 
curriculum, it can be hard to even establish benchmarks for whether or not something is effective uh, because everybody's doing things a little bit differently from one end with the uh, the New York Magazine profile on the sexuality and society course that, you know, emphasizes the, you know, more honest, pleasurable, comprehensive approach to, you know, places like my high school where it was, you know, 15 minutes in a biology class. Right. Right. And, and things change. Um, there was a Dallas Morning News article in November that said that Texas has decided for the past two years not to apply for funds from the PrEP program, which is it was um, created by Congress through the, the health care reform mm-hmm. in uh, March 2010. And it, it pursues a more um, evidence based, pr- uh, comprehensive right. approach. And so anyway, but they're declining the funds for that program. But they've actually seen a surge in school districts teaching abstinence plus education. Mm-hmm. So there's been this huge surge up from 3.6% of districts teaching this stuff to uh, more than a quarter. Well, and around 10 states to date are now turning down funds for the abstinence only education programs. Right. So, you know, states are, are picking and choosing. And then you have the public versus private approaches. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, the, the the picture of sex education in the United States is, um, you know, kind of kind of understandably muddied. Right. It's kind of sketchy. It is a little sketchy, and that's why in the next episode we'll hopefully clarify things a little bit and talk about what exactly the difference is between abstinence-only education, what those kids are learning, and more comprehensive sex education, and whether or not it's making any difference. Right. Are kids doing it less? Are they getting pregnant less? Are they contracting fewer STDs? Do they know? I mean, where are they where are they even learning about sex? Right. Is it all Cosmo or the internet? A lot of it's porn. A not, lot of it not, is porn. Not to be a spoiler or anything. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, I think that I think porn's a good note to end on. On that note. <laughs> uh, so tune in to the next episode where we will talk about whether or not abstinence-only education is effective, and uh, maybe we, what we can do to catch up with the rest of the developed world. Sure. So in the meantime, if you have any thoughts to send our way about your experience with sex ed, because I'm very curious to know um, what people learned out there about the birds and the bees, how, how you figured out what was going on. Send us an email, momstuffathowstuffworks.com, or put something up on Facebook and start a conversation. And I have an email here from Drew, and this is in response to our episode on whether male bisexuality exists. He writes, I consider myself a bisexual male and have been given the gay, straight, or lying before, but mostly from gay men. They typically assume that I'm having trouble coming out of the closet and then try to help me face it. As far as dating, it is very difficult to find that right partner. I prefer a woman partner mostly because I prefer them physically. But finding a woman partner that is open to you being bi is extremely difficult. Many women, whether they are bi or not themselves, are uncomfortable and sometimes disgusted at the thought of a bi man. But they do exist. My partner and I have now been together for six years, and she loves that I'm bi, and it has opened up the possibility for us to have a boyfriend or girlfriend too, if we choose. This is from Shane. This is also about our Bisexual Gentleman podcast. He says, as a bisexual man myself, having just turned 40 and having both male, having had both male and female relationships in my life to date, 
I have had this very discussion with friends, girlfriends, partners, and family more times than I could count. As a general rule, I'm pretty open about my sexuality, and as you rightly pointed out, there are some days I am clearly more into men or women than others. To be frank, though, I thought that was just me, and I was intrigued to hear that it is not so unusual. In a time when being a female bisexual is almost the in thing, my last three female partners, including my current and ex-wives, have all had same-sex relationships. Though interestingly, all have found my fascination with men bordering on unbearable. I think that most of that attitude comes from insecurity, though. Men are confident that even if their female partner was or has had a tryst with another woman, they would come back to them. I wonder if women believe the same. Maybe a gay relationship is more competition than their egos can handle. And acceptance is about ego, after all. My other conclusion is that men are generally less concerned about their partners cheating on them than women are. Is it possible that any competition, be it male or female, is considered in hostile terms to a female? Just a thought, rather than a statement. Thank you, Shane. That is an interesting theory, Shane, and it makes me think about、um, our episode on jealousy because the thing is, a lot of times men tend to be more jealous of、uh, a physical infidelity than. "Quote unquote emotional cheating." So, I don't know, Shane. I think that pokes a hole in your theory. But anyway, if you got an email to send us, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is the place to do it, or head over to Facebook, send us a comment, let us know what you think, and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And again, you can check out our blog during the week. It's stuff mom never told you at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?